This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello. Uh, good evening. Uh, my name is Bhaskar Sharkar. I am the chair of the Film and Media Studies Department at UC Santa Barbara. We just finished watching a screening of uh, Vishal Varadwaj's film Haidar, which is an adaptation of Hamlet. Uh, and I'm delighted to have with us uh, uh, Priya Jaikumar, who's professor in the Film and Cinema and Media Studies Department uh, in the School of the Cinematic Arts at USC. Uh, so, Priya, welcome. Thank you. Uh, and as you probably know, this is a part of a whole series that we are doing here, uh, organized by the Carsey Center on... Uh, various Shakespearean adaptations of, on film. And so today we are going to talk about Hyder and Hamlet. So why Shakespeare? Uh, let me thank In this you. context. Yeah, let me thank Bhaskar, Patrice, Emily, everyone who's put this together in the center for having me here. I'm delighted to be here with, with everyone. Um, so why Shakespeare, why Hamlet, and why uh, Kashmir? I think this is kind of a question we can come around to in multiple ways, and I'll just foray, start into it. And I speak not as a Shakespearean scholar or a Kashmir scholar, but as someone interested in film. Um, But even from a surface reading, you can see, I think, some critical themes that are present in Hamlet, and we can consider how they uh, shift or how they uh, allow certain things to come to the fore when it's taken to Kashmir. So one central theme is, uh, is betrayal. And uh, in Kashmir's history, you know, it's, it's a history of betrayal, uh, starting from, you can think of um, just the whole uh, princely states, and Kashmir being the largest princely state. Uh, British India was governed with British Indian uh, colonies and the princely states, which were given the choice of whether to go with Pakistan or India during independence slash partition. And with Kashmir's location, Jammu and Kashmir, um, right in the crosshairs of Pakistan and India. So Pakistan claims it for itself, India claims it for itself, and it has no existence in that sense. Its self-determination you know, is, has to be wrested from these two powers. So from that to the absence of a plebiscite, it's just a history of betrayal. Um, and Hamlet, of course, you know, he's betrayed by his uncle and then possibly by the mother. And then deceit is a second important theme. And in um, Haider, even in the pre-credit sequence, you're plunged into this world of um, non-state actors, of extrajudicial processes. So I think that is really actually interesting and something that we can, I think, talk about more because... In a Hamlet, you have a monarchy. It's, it's, you know, it, is, it is both personal and political, but it is resting a throne. The uncle has taken the throne from Hamlet's father, but this is a democracy, right? So the scandal is something different. It's we are in the shadow area of democracy where you have... Um, it, it starts working at multiple levels because here you have people who uh, don't have due process, who do not have access to the law. So it's a world of deceit. And Hamlet's dissimulation, his pretense in order to find out what the truth is, uh, takes on a different complexion when it comes to Kashmir. Because here he has, it's up is down, right is wrong, and there is no um, uh, 
access to justice. So I think there's another level at which deceit is working here. And um, I guess the final one is revenge, you know, Hamlet, revenge. And that is a really sticky problem because this is a real situation. We're not dealing with a hypothetical. We're not dealing with a fictional. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does revenge mean in the Kashmiri context? It's, it, Pakistan and India are um, avenging each other. They're fratricidal war uh, there. And so if Kashmir has to define revenge in this context, I think Vishal Bharadwaj and Basharat Pir, the script writer, have to come up with artistic solutions to figure out what that might mean and throw into that that, this mix of um, revenge begets revenge, violence begets more violence. So um, that seems to be a bit galling if you think about an Indian director asking uh, Kashmir to take the path of nonviolence after this history of violence. So actually I wanted to ask you what you thought maybe as well of how they come up with a solution. And I know, I know we perhaps should not talk about the ending right at the beginning, but the fact that Hamlet walks away. So in that sense, this constant repeated Ghazala saying as well that you know, violence begets violence, revenge begets revenge. And the grandfather. And the grandfather. That's what so it that seeds, with. he seeds yeah. it, and then Ghazala picks it up. Though, of course, ironically, she then blows herself up. Right. So, what does it mean for, what is revenge in this scenario? And of course, Hamlet is raising the same question because yeah. he, this is the thinking prince, right? Shakespeare's already given a new complexion to this idea of revenge. He's a reflective prince. It's to be or not to be, and he's, that's his dilemma. But it takes on a different shape, I think, when, it, when you talk about Kashmir. Yeah. Um, the grandfather character is interesting because generationally he belongs to the times of Gandhi. And this is definitely paying a certain kind of lip service to Gandhi, evoking Gandhi's memory to talk about a certain kind of non-violent path. But on the other hand, it's really interesting. I was uh, looking at this interview with Vishal Bharadwaj, and he says that initially Hamlet was going to die, Hyder was going to die, just like in Shakespeare. But then... Uh, one of his interlocutors who looked at the script said, what kind of a future is that for Kashmir if Hadar were to die? So politically, it seemed very strange for to kill off the protagonist. So they had to take that route, not to go for So, I mean, they kind of tried to, you know, weave that in with their whole against revenge theme, kind of. But uh, mm-hmm. I think it was more a kind of expediency about, you know, like, what kind of politics does it... So it's interesting, the same choice points to a certain kind of what you call galling, right? What does it mean to have Kashmiris suddenly become nonviolent? And kind of, you know, what people call terrorism is their act of liberation, war for liberation. Uh, and on the other hand, to, to, to have the revenge and have Hamlet or Heather killed off points to kind of a no-future scenario. Right. I mean, I think with with Hamlet, it, it's kind of an existential choice in some way, right? It's t- to uh, take arms in the sea of trouble, or to kind of to you know t- the the sorrow kind of is it whatever? I don't remember the exact words, but it's is does it does he uh, go the path of uh, is it nobler to suffer in sorrow or or to take arms? But when it comes to Kashmir, it's either solution is in a way untenable because the terms of self-determination have not been 
given to them. Mm-hmm. I was thinking that another reason why maybe Haider is uh, walking away here is because the character of Horatio does not exist, and Horatio is the witness, so yeah. he lives to tell the story. So there is Good also point. the really significant idea of witnessing. Hum dekhenge, the fact that uh, you know, Fez, Ahmed Fez's poetry is repeated throughout this um, film. And this is a very famous song that was actually sung even recently by uh, JNU Jawala Nehru University students. This is a, a you know, college campus that has been um, under onslaught by uh, the right-wing government. But this idea of we will witness the downfall of oppression, we will witness, we will stand witness, and perhaps Haider living is part of that witnessing in that he's absorbing within him the character of, of Horatio. Um, and it's interesting that he goes to Aligarh University, which is a famous site for you know, research and scholarship, but it is also known as a Muslim university. Uh, predominantly, I guess, Muslim students uh, study there. So that's a kind of tradition that he draws on, right, also. Yeah. I mean, I do want to pick up the idea of the, you know, this progressive writers movement and the way in which um, poetry is another presence, both from Shakespearean, but, you know, Mm -hmm. various other traditions. But perhaps maybe before going there, I wanted to ask you, uh, partly because I know in Santa Barbara, you've been doing the global popular series and especially thinking about it in terms of the hyphenate between global and popular while we are here talking about adaptations, uh, we can think of, I think, Shakespeare as in that kind of global pop- popular paradigm, mm-hmm. as well as perhaps Vishal Bharadwaj. So in addition to the adaptation of one to the other, both as certain moments of the global and the popular, because with Shakespeare, the uh, you know, Elizabethan England on the, the mercantilism on the rise, a sense of the global. I know within Shakespeare studies, I believe there's a debate about where mm-hmm. he is in relationship to the colonial, but certainly an awareness of the more, an awareness of you know the Turk, more with yeah. Othello and all of these, the, the presence coming in, and then you have East India Company, uh, Levant Company, all of these kind of companies come into existence. Uh, in Hamlet itself, you have Denmark and England and Norway, so there's kind of a presence. But at the same time, Shakespeare is making these plays that are popular, that are for the audience, for the for the masses. And Vishal Bharadwaj is also within working within Bollywood very much in the post two thousand when Hindi cinema has gone global, but using several very local idioms. Mm So I was wondering what that suggests to you, since I know you've been thinking about these questions yeah. for a while. So it's interesting with Shakespeare and the way it's being taken up all over the world, there are quite a few categories that have come up. Global Shakespeare, indigenous Shakespeare, post-colonial Shakespeare, and there are volumes that have been published on these categories. So the global Shakespeare kind of, I think, presupposes a sort of... Uh, you know, a universal kind of structure that becomes available to everyone to play with, adapt to their situation. And even the indigenization idea takes up this whole idea of the structure and then it gets indigenized locally, right? So that comes more from the local side. But whether it's from the global side or the local side, still there is this sense that what we have ultimately is derivative of something that was there before as the original. And I think something like Heather kind of questions that very reflexively and because so much of this translation or adaptation 
has to do with drawing on local specificities and experiences of you know of a kind that completely as you said to me while we're talking about this that in a way Haider reveals things about Hamlet that we didn't know about Hamlet uh, so it frames it and draws out different kinds of nuances right so in that sense I think you know we have to think about like which is the original which is the derivative kind of mm-hmm. yeah I mean picking up from that I do think that there's a, a certain, there is a certain edge when you take the same story and put it, like I said, in a society where there's a claim to transparency, right? So what, what was done by Claudius, what is done by Khurram, um, it is scandalous within Hamlet because he has killed the king, he has taken the throne. But here, Khurram is a double agent and he is standing for election, so it's a democracy, yeah. right? There's ostensibly also the for promise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, and so, so there's there's the the premise that there will be some kind of due process, and there is none. And I think that is one of the reasons why, perhaps, one of the things we can dwell on now and over the course of this conversation is the the famous to be or not to be speech, which appears in many different ways mm-hmm. throughout the film, including, of course, Salman and Salman the you know uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern character saying should we go or should we not yeah. go but hum hai ya hum nahi which is do we exist or do we not exist so again it's not just about how should I be though that is also the question but do we exist or do we not exist first it's a question of this this uh, state that is that is in the border right and that has no border uh, Ananya Jahanara Kabir calls it an epistemic murk because there is literally no yeah. border. There's only a de facto border. So that there was the Radcliffe line, which was you know a, a few days after India's independence and Pakistan's independence, they announced it. So there were several communities who literally did not know where they would go. Um, and then once that is declared, immediately you have uh, tribesmen from the northwest frontier province moving in and then India sending its armies. And that was the first war between India and Pakistan. And subsequently... 72 kind of a provisional line which is called the line of control so if you look at the map literally India claims it one way Pakistan claims it another way and there's dots and dashes so there's no internationally recognized map so do we exist or do we not exist is a primary question and uh, so that is a new thing that is something he's infusing into uh, yeah. Shakespeare yeah also you know that in the lal chok that square when uh, Heather is doing that whole kind of monologue right and he says the, I believe, uh, Article 47 of the 1948 UN Resolution, do we exist or do we not exist? And I could not but think of Palestine as a direct global kind of comparison, right? Because also the bringing up the chutzpah, that's, that's the insertion here, right? Yeah. So that he kind of puts it in a global frame yeah. in terms of comparisons yeah. and the many acts of disappearing that have appeared all over the world, particularly Latin America. Particularly, yeah. Uh, that is really kind of a provocative statement, I think, because you think of a lot of other Palestinian filmmakers as well. I'm thinking of Kamal al-Jafari that Peter mm-hmm. Limbrick has written about. This question of um, how to represent yourself when there is no acknowledgement of you in the world. So do we exist or do we not exist? And so it's not just the liminality of the border. It is what register should we speak in that you will hear us? How do we speak to make ourselves visible becomes a really important question, I think. 
because I want to sort of connect this to the character actually of Ruhudar because it occurs to me that he appears structurally at the interval point, so he's right at the middle, and it's that very, very crucial moment. Um, while Hamlet, you know, the father's ghost in Shakespeare, he appears quite early, Ruhudar is in the middle and he has that music da, 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 that follows him. So it's a very dramatic appearance with his in white. And the reason, I mean, I, I'm assuming Vishal Bharadwaj and others, they have, perhaps they have, perhaps they have not read, you know, Hannah Arendt and Agamben and Membe, but that's, there seems to be an instinctive understanding mm-hmm. of the multiple kinds of uh, existence, which is you can live, that's your biological life, but there's another kind of life, which is your political life. You know, are you accessible within the world of political representation? And you can kill a person, you can take away their life, but taking away their rights is another kind of death. Mm-hmm. And so linking this to do we exist or do we not exist, this idea of the father has been killed, but there is the spectral being who has no access to political rights, but is trying to get into that sphere and acting as a non-state agent, right? He's, he's outside the sphere of law. And so Ruhudar becomes um, an important way of, of mediating between that invisibility and visibility. So to the world of the visible, he is spectral and he's trying to exercise his will in that way. So I think that is another addition to the Hamlet text in, in a very specific Kashmiri right. kind of context. Right. And, you know, you bring up law, and uh, I was also thinking of laws. What happens when you have, on the one hand, legal structures, on the other hand, this kind of idea of laws? And that's another way of thinking about the popular, right? Like, how do these come together or they confront each other here, particularly? Uh, it's really interesting. I was uh, showing you Bashar Hatpeer's The Autobiographical Writings. It's Curfew Nights, right? Um, it starts with these two maps that are hand-drawn, which are really about uh, sort of pointing out the places that he's talking about in his autobiographical writings. And at one point it says, not to scale. Of course not, because it's from memory, right? And if one were to counterpose that, we could have brought these up as slides um, to, say, the UN's uh, map of Kashmir. You get a very different sort of picture, right? And the kind of memory and what that does in relation to the line of control that was set up in 1972. These are very malleable uh, and kind of always shifting. And the way then loss gets negotiated and uh, experienced, uh, remembered, uh, and continues to be experienced, PTSD or whatever form, that's really interesting, that, yeah. that convention. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that makes me think of two things. One is kind of going back to this idea of um, the elusiveness of these texts, not the elusive, but elu- they're alluding to a number of different things. So if we think about kind of the um, multivocality of both Shakespeare, but also of this film of Haider, and one of the texts, in addition to, of course, being framed within the Hamlet story, is Basharat Peer's um, memoir, autobiography, uh, Curfew Nights. And lots of the scenes, you know, skimming through that, a lot of the scenes that seem to me most surreal in this film are drawn directly from his kind of experiential Mm -hmm. uh, account, such as the bodies in the truck 
um, and then the young boy coming out of it, or a body thrown uh, uh, into the river Jhelum, yeah. uh, assuming that it's dead, that the Rudar body and the blood coagulates. I, and I was thinking that is just so surreal. That would never. This is clearly these part are of all the, real. These are real accounts from drawn yeah. from Bashar al-Pir, and so that is another source text in a way for for this. And film. he makes a cameo appearance, Pir, as that traumatized guy who cannot enter his own home until he search for identity. He's so used to being frisked all the time. Right. And that also happened. Not right. with him, but somebody else. Right, the traumatic body. And what you said about memory, I think, is something maybe we can you know, pause on and, and think about a little bit. Because I find it really interesting, the whole idea through the film, if you track the, the um, presence of house and home, it starts with... Ghazala, right at the beginning, as a school teacher, teacher. in pre-credit sequence, she says, what is a home, you know, where there's caring and sharing and loving and father and mother? What is a house? She doesn't complete that sentence, and then there's a cut to her husband being taken away. So, you know, then, then we have the sequence when the house is being destroyed. So the house becomes a ruin, and I think ruins are an important part and a significant kind of iconic uh, trope within the whole film. Uh, you have the ruin of the temple where the wonderful mousetrap dance, the, you know, bismil bismil dance happens. Um, and in the end, again, there's kind of the firing of the house in the graveyard. But the house becomes the central point where memory is triggered because the first memory sequence is when um, Haider enters his house right. and then he goes you know, so I was wondering if you, you, you thought about, because I know you think about trauma a lot in your work as well, but how memory functions in this film? Because, of course, in, in Hamlet, I mean, the, the ghost is coming and giving an account, but there is no, this is a film, there are other devices, and, and memory is one of those moments where we're constantly moving between the past and the present. Yeah. I haven't quite thought about this too, in relation to this, but yeah. I think it's a very interesting question to think but about. But maybe what she was saying about the, the traumatized man who can't enter right. his house, I mean, that's also a, a way of inhabiting a memory kind of in the body. Yeah, and when he first returns and actually says, your home is not quite there, but he insists on the go, and he starts kind of acting out, right, as if he has to put together the house. Yeah. That is an incredibly interesting and powerful moment uh, about that, that sensibility or the traumatized persons, how do they interact with that? Yeah, I mean, the, there's a magnitude of what has happened yeah. and then his clinging to the everyday. And actually the memories are about everyday yeah. rituals. The vase has fallen. Vase he has, has to fallen. put it back. The bat. And then how when, when he's, he's playing ping pong, or he's, so most of the memory sequences are of them doing small everyday activities, except I guess Vishal Bharadwaj does use right at the end the memory as kind of a you know detection device. So he's using it more more um, like a, a, a puzzle novel that you're trying to fit, enigmatic novel because the phone call that you leave the phone call that Ghazala gets, and then in the end you get the flashback of who is actually calling her. So that's a slightly uh, a slightly different way in which memory is being mobilized in that Also the instance. way in which the father quizzes him about the next verse of his favorite song and then later Ruvdar gets his trust by exactly quoting those lines. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. If I might talk about the verses here, because yeah. I feel like uh, 
Faiz Ahmad Faiz, who's whose poetry this is, is a very strong presence through the film. So in addition to the Shakespeare, um, you know, many South Asians in the audience might be familiar with, Faiz Ahmed Faiz is um, an extremely well-known, famous um, uh, poet. And he, and, um, he was also an editor of Pakistan Times. So he would have been one of the revolutionary poets of British India. And, you know, he spans, he, he lives up until the 80s. He was exiled by Zia. So he was a socialist, leftist. But to say that is, is reductive in some ways because it's, he's his politics, but also he's a literary figure. And he was outraged by the bloodshed. He wrote a lot of his poetry in exile, and exiles are a significant um, uh, uh, way of thinking about this film to the exilic presence, which I think we'll uh, bracket for the for the moment. But what I find interesting about Fez, um, one of the things is, in addition to all the specific poems of his that I mentioned, is that um, he gets politicized during his prison sentences. And he, he, he uses a lot of the tropes from Urdu poetry, and the beloved is a very significant one of those. So one of the things that we say, I think we all of us say, said when we were kids, is aur bhi gham hai zamane mein mohabbat ke siwa, rahatein aur bhi hai vasl ki rahat ke siwa, which is there are other sorrows in the world than the sorrow or the grief of love, and there are other unions than the union of lovers, which is to say that his idea of the beloved shifts from the romantic beloved, the 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 you know, the female beloved in in a lot of his poetry to a utopian community, a state of being, a world, a society. And the same journey, Haider takes sort of the same journey. So in the beginning when he's, um, his book of poetry is confiscated, um, Arshi talks about how all the poems are about her and his kind of politicization, which was there in the beginning, but we see that trajectory. So he's kind of following Fez's um, trajectory. In addition to the fact that he's playing that game with his father, which apparently was taken from Bashar Pir's autobiography, so making making Haider not just a student like Hamlet, but making him specifically a poet, I think carries some significance. And you remind me now that uh, you know that Fez actually is the poet most associated with uh, the partition of India into India and Pakistan, because of course, like many, he fought for the partition. I mean, the freedom. But when the freedom comes, he describes it as a moth-eaten dawn because it's, uh, you know, there's a kind of gap in the middle, right? And so he talks about how this is not the freedom that we comrades had fought for. It's a moth-eaten dawn. I don't remember the exact Urdu Mm -hmm. phrase, but, and I'm thinking now, you know, the home the dilapidated home, that's a moth-eaten home. Then the red scarf that she unentangles again, right, falls apart as she herself falls apart. That kind of moth-eaten sense is there throughout the film. Mm-hmm. I, and actually, this is just a personal note, which I really like that interpretation of Ophelia's death, so that she's not giving flowers and it's not yeah. rosemary and it's not weeds, but that red scarf and when the, the red, the blood on the, on the snow and the, uh, just her lying on the bed. I feel like visually that is a very arresting image. And I think making... Um, this is another kind of conversation we could have is, is women in this, yeah. in this film and the, making her a journalist, which was Basharat Peer's 
is Basharat P's uh, profession. Uh, but poetry and uh, journalism seem to be like these two bastions of um, an alternative yeah. world pushback to, you know, otherwise it's a world of border security force, uh, militants, um, insurgents, counterinsurgents, multiple duplicitous visions of the state, totalitarian states, democracy yeah. parading as, or totalitarianism parading, parading as democracy. And then mobilizing, on the other hand, is um, kind of this alternative world of, of, of poetry and journalism, in a way. One could even call it resistance. Resistance, yes. <laughs> I think we could go that far. <laughs> yeah. Um, in this... The, the you're like quoting it the last few days in this uh, stinking, no, what rotten what? state, rotten state, rotten state of uh, ours, yeah. <laughs> yeah. rotten state of ours. And I'm thinking Kashmir, India, US. What are we talking about? Right, right. yeah. So I mean, <laughs> uh, I think this is really relevant, and and this, you know, it comes out in 2014. So um, Kashmir becomes is one of the most militarized zones in the world. Um, you know. It got it's that that starts around um, eighty nine, uh, but I think um, a lot you know two thousand one it takes a certain global complexion post nine eleven, uh, so the kinds of discourses and the kinds of global engagements that this film has is really as you were saying with a lot of other yeah. points in the world. But to go back to the woman question, Gazala. You know, New York Times, I remember reading a review in the New York Times and the reviewer was saying, this film should really have been called Ghazala, not Haidar. Mm. Uh, because Ghazala has a kind of agency that Gertrude never has in Shakespeare. Uh, I mean, to get set with the bombs. Right. That's pretty... I don't quite, yeah, I, I don't know what to make of it. I think I have to think about that a little more. But I, I heard, again, from that interview that I think we both read, that Bashar Peer was not happy with the revenge begets revenge mm-hmm. kind of, you know, um, story or either just walking away, given the amount of violence yeah. that the people of Kashmir have faced and dealt with. And that was sort of his insistence of, uh, of blowing things up. Um, it is curious that this film has so many different kinds of things. And I know some reviewers did not like that fact. And actually, maybe I should ask this to you as a question, because I, I, I'm thinking about your um, book, Morning the Nation. And I remember being quite uh, struck by your description of Ghatak's films as kind of not giving you... Um, that catharsis or in the Brechtian way, the closure, right? And spatially, the contradictions are left open. And I feel like in this film as well, you have so many different modalities, right? So you have that gory blood half bodies Mm -hmm. in the end sprayed against the snow. You have the poetic register. You have the songs and dances. You have the documentary sequences. People have panned it for that, some of Mm -hmm. them. Uh, Mm How, do you would you put that in the same category? Like, how do you think of the the combination that it has of these documentary sequences along with the melodramatic sequences? Yeah, uh, there, I found two kinds of people uh, who among the people who have, you know among the folks who had seen this film, one who loved the first half, and the others who loved the second half. I belong to the second category uh, because for a simple reason the kind of documentary realism that we see in the beginning, 
you know, people being phrased, people being bothered, uh, people being tortured. These are all facts we kind of know. It's nothing new, really. Now, the, it's true, though, that this film does bring a lot of these facts to the, you know, uh, attention of mainstream Indian audiences who probably, like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstein, the Salman and Salman figures, are so besotted with Bollywood that they don't have to pay attention to what's going on, right? And in a self-reflexive way, I think, again, uh, Bhardwaj is pointing to the function, the ideological function that Bollywood perhaps plays in kind of deflecting attention from what's going on around. Let's just have song and dance and have fun and, uh, you know, be obsessed with Salman and Shah Rukh and be done. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, uh, I'm losing my train of thought. What was I saying? The second half. Oh, the second half, yeah. The second half gets really interesting for me because it leaves out, it is so confusing, right? Uh, I think, you know, it's very difficult uh, and it would be totally wrong to start to say, oh, Ghazala is Mother India who betrays Kashmir or this and that, like this kind of character to be, you know, connected to this kind of uh, act, right, deception or revenge. It's more um, at the affective register that these things work, not this kind of exact strict correspondence. But people tend to go there. People tend to try and find those kind of allegories or exact, you know, linkages. Mm -hmm. That never really worked. So in that sense, I mean, you know, it's not that coherent a text in spite of the kind of ending, you know. One could go various ways with this, the way, you know, as you said, I have to think more about what, re- what kind of agency does Ghazala have, right? So in that sense, I think it's similar to Ghatak, probably. Right. I mean, he cannot, uh, no director like Vishal Bharadwaj, you cannot resolve this when it is a current situation and it is, I won't say unresolvable, but under the current circumstances, all choices that are presented to Kashmir are untenable. I mean, mm. they are not willing to accept the choices the way that they are served up to them. So which filmmaker can come and give you a pat kind of resolution? I think you can raise these issues. But also, um, I guess the other s- story I'm trying to s- tell is that that poetry, you know, there are certain certain lyrical registers, I feel like. Expressive affective or whatever else that you can bring up. Yeah. And um, the, actually, it makes me think, because I was recently teaching in my class, I was uh, teaching Rossellini. Uh, yeah, we were looking at Journey to Italy and uh, reading Bazan and Stematsky. And, you know, Noah Stematsky talks about how Rossellini in Journey to Italy has these kind of, also doesn't give closure to the narrative. There's lots of different kinds of spaces and places that are presented there. So in this film, you have, I feel like, the state which is giving you a choice, which is saying, this is Islamabad or Anantnag. You have to choose one. And that's the only reality. You have to pick one. If you pick Islamabad, that is wrong. You are incarcerated. If you choose Anantnag, that is right, because that is part of Indian Pakistan, that is Jammu and Kashmir. Haider is perverse, and he calls it um, Anantnag. Oh, sorry, he calls it Islamabad. because to provoke. He, to provoke, in a way, and because he's not willing to take that yeah. choice as it is given to him. Yeah. But Vishal Bharadwaj's film 
wants to do it all. Like they, neither taking the duality nor taking the one position, but kind of activating all of them, um, all the meanings. So he's giving you Kashmir as the romantic sequence, as I was saying, when you have the couple. Mm -hmm. And that is the traditional way in which Hindi films have incorporated the land of Kashmir, pure background, pure beauty, idyllic beauty for the lovers, for for romantic retreat. And so uh, Hamlet actually allows Vishal Bharadwaj to do certain things that he couldn't otherwise do because he's then allowed to use um, Hamlet as a story to talk about Kashmir uh, in terms of the occupied areas in terms of the you know the duplicity of the army in terms of the double speak the counterinsurgent forces um, as well as take the landscape shots so he, he's kind of almost bringing up all of them and maybe leaving them sort of open ended which has irked some critics but uh, it doesn't irk me I feel like that's actually makes me like it more because he's he's kind of opening them all out for you for, as a viewer. Yeah, he didn't please two groups mainly. One that wanted him to take a clear stand right. saying that the Indian army is horrible and you know like because of the disproportionate uh, suffering that the Kashmiri folks have uh, endured all these years. Mm-hmm. Uh, this film fails to kind of you know it, it kind of makes things look more balanced. And the other side saying that you know this is unpatriotic, it's anti-army, uh, anti-nationalist even. Right. So. I, I was wondering, since you brought up Salman and Salman, if you could talk about them, because it's a very interesting interpretation of uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yeah. Because, um, you know, on the one hand, continuing with the kind of deliberate incoherence of the film, let us say, there is that poetic lyrical register with the quoting of the poets, and then there is the 90s video world, right? The kind yeah. of fandom. So there is a lot of this. And the chatka. And the, the chatka and the matka, the pelvic thrust. As, <laughs> I was talking to one of my students and she was talking about the doubling in this film. There's a lot of doubling, the, the Ru and Ruhdar and uh, the father and then Salman and Salman mm-hmm. and they're imitating Salman. And video piracy. So you know, so if you're talking about the world of adaptation, your literal yeah. knockoffs, and don't don't watch Rocky, watch our Salman. So there's the echo factor. So there is the kind of the vernacular idiom Absolutely. that is being deployed, and especially since you you're interested in kind of the video circuits as well. Piracy stuff, yeah, yeah. Um, definitely. And I think that's where the popular also comes back in a very interesting way. That what people do with cinema locally is very different from what we think of cinema kind of in a, in a global register. It's not the big business necessarily. The local stuff is much more piratical, much more opportunistic, but also, you know, the way they circulate. Things change in the circulation. Other scenes get inserted, uh, what are called cut pieces in Bangladesh, for instance. Uh, Loti Hook has written about this, right? When they insert uh, pornographic sequences in mainstream narratives and show them just like, so you're watching a movie and then boom, that has nothing to do with the rest of the film. Couple of minutes of porn come, come up. Uh, so there are many ways in which cinema gets uh, taken up, distributed, shown, enjoyed all over South Asia that completely turns the idea of cinema on its head. And I think some of this is being pointed to here. Mm-hmm. 
I wonder, I mean, I, I'm, it's not in my uh, place to say this, but I wonder, if, in a way, if you know, Shakespearean plays can also be read as, because from what I can see, I mean, there's a lot of the, the comic interlude and the tragedy, and certainly tragedies might have a different um, formal structure, yeah. you know, compared to a com- the comedies, which have many more of those interludes. But here you have certain sections, and um, Hamlet, you know, he as a character, he takes on this deliberate lunacy in order to gauge the truth of the moment, yeah. right? So it's a deliberate dissimulation and therefore he becomes the kind of jester figure. Yeah. And um, so I think it's, it's interesting that it's a similar, you know, in terms of incorporating that into this. Um, I feel like I did read that apparently Harold Broom talks about Hamlet the consciousness of the the prince being much bigger than Hamlet the play. Mm. I feel like that is not true in Haider because I feel that Haider's consciousness uh, doesn't overtake the film. The thing that overtakes the film is is Kashmir. I feel like Kashmir extends beyond the film itself because Kashmir is being um, brought to life in a lot of different ways. Uh, There is the, the... realist mode, the documentary, there is the melodramatic, there is the kind of landscape aspect. And the uh, Jilam Jilam song, Jilam Jilam which song. actually the director himself sings, that's his voice you hear, on the river, that song, the boat song. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah, plus, I mean, you know, the filmmaker is also the music composer, but he actually started as a composer for films. And then he started making his own movies. But in this film, he also sings that particular song. And I think he chose to sing that particular song. That itself says something mm. about his intention in making this film. And it's funny that not many reviewers have actually, actually have seen nobody uh, you know, uh, note that or make a comment on that. Mm. Mm. Uh, but also the puppetry and the Bhan tradition, which is a comic gesture tradition that you see... Uh, him use both in the public square where uh, in a kind of Brechtian way he's commenting on uh, the state of Kashmir but also the puppets uh, and the song sequence. So he draws on local traditions right, of, and uses very specific uh, Kashmiri musical idioms, Kashmiri instruments uh, in the orchestration. So he's really going deep into that kind of what you're talking about, bringing Kashmir alive. Yeah. yeah, and the fact that he is using these actual locations. So yeah. when the Bismil Bismil song happens, that is at a, a sun temple, which apparently is, um, you know, it, it's really ancient, and it was destroyed quite early in, in um, its, since it was constructed by Islamic invasions, and currently it's completely not preserved because nobody really cares. So talking about ruins, here's a ruin which has not been made into a monument. It is just Mm. part of the background. Um, Apparently it's quite abandoned, but soon after they started shooting, people started arriving there and they would surround the shoot, so they're incorporated into the scene. Um, And that is the mousetrap sequence, which I, it's one of my highlights of that film. I get goosebumps watching it because... Like you said, the choreography, and he was a choreographer, the filmmaker is a choreographer, he started as a choreographer. And the actor was first trained as a dancer. As a dancer, and it's, uh, it's pretty martial, it's acrobatic, there's martial arts that are being used there. So Hamlet himself is in the mousetrap play in this case. 
Um, and I think it brings out that the theatricality is talking about the deception in the beginning, the deception of the state. That means the state has a certain theater, right? So where uh, Kuram says to the father who says, my son has been abducted, please help me. He says, well, let's put an FIR. He will be in prison. And at least that way, even if the charges are false, he is not disappeared. So the when democracy is not functioning, then it's, it has its own internal language, and you have to understand how that language is working. And the only way to retrieve someone from being disappeared is to have him claim to be a criminal, because that is a, a preferable charge. So there's the theatrics of statecraft, um, and, and uh, Hamlet is, is kind of deploying stagecraft and the theatrics of stagecraft in order to out that's the theatrics of statecraft because that's the ghost see the sequence of mousetrap is to figure out the veracity of what the ghost is is telling Hamlet and the same thing is happening here he was figuring out the veracity so one deception is trying to kind of bring out the other deception in that particular sequence so uh, a lot of things about that sequence, I feel like, are quite uh, profound and in the way that they're working within the film. Shall we talk about the grave digger sequence a bit? What yeah, do you want to sure. talk about? In the, I mean, I, that, the, just the way it starts with the sound of the shovel, right, in the snow. It's pretty amazing. Uh, and I don't know if you notice, but one of the grave diggers, I think the first one you see is the one guy who actually, in a very early sequence, had gone to the police station with a picture of his mm. uh, son who is missing. Mm. So he then becomes the grave digger because his son disappeared. So he might find the body. That will turn up someday. Um, anything you want to add? Because I think we have I to guess, end soon. Okay. Um, I guess the fact that they are militants. I mean, that's kind of quite yeah. a surprise. You know, the fact that they're actually, uh, uh, it, they bring the guns out and then you it, have the big combat there because you, you, you suspect. And they're, they're, you know, they're grave diggers. They sing, they laugh, and they're militants. So they're given quite a complex Which texture. I think is not a trivial fact because even the common people over the decades have become radicalized mm -hmm. because of the consistent oppression that they have to live with. Yeah. Do we have time to talk about the censorship or uh, should we abandon? 40-something uh, cuts, right? What yeah, else? I mean, I think a film like this would not be able to come out today. This no. it came out in 2014 when, uh, you know, Narendra Modi's government had just come into power. So uh, they managed to get away in a way, and so it is interesting what, again, maybe Hamlet serves as a certain guise to slip certain things in, but it was banned in Pakistan, which was sort of surprising. Um, I've read some accounts of why that was, and it seemed like uh, it's, part of it was also the distributors were okay with it because it banned theatrically. It came by, they, there was a delay, and then it came out in on cable, and it was available in other modes, but they were mainstream Bollywood films, one of them called Bang Bang, <laughs> which, which actually did release theatrically over Haider. Um, so, so I think Vishal Bharadwaj, the filmmaker, is quite aware of the way in which Bollywood sells much more easily than yeah. a film such as this. And therefore, there's constant references, including Nas Cinema, which is you know, the screen um, playing the movies, and then you have the detainees right there in mm -hmm. front of the screen. So it's really challenging uh, your mode of looking at this film and perhaps looking at uh, Bollywood films as well. Thank you, Priya, for making the trick and joining us tonight. <laughs> and thanks for joining Long us. Trick. Good night. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.